listening to Citizens History, a podcast asking how an awareness of history might help us to identify and address the most urgent challenges facing the United States and the world. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 8. Wherever you are and however you may be listening, we're glad you're here. I'm Padraig Rowan, a historian at Quincy University. Today's episode, recorded on 12 January 2024, is the first of many we'll do on liberalism. What is it? Where did it come from? And why should we care? With me is my co-host, J. Matt Ward, also a historian at QU. As always, we invite you to become part of the conversation and welcome your comments, criticism, and suggestions for future episodes. I mean, it is. It's a huge umbrella term that stretches uh, all the way back to you know, perhaps the ancient Greek philosophers, and we're so arguing about it today. And uh, it, I, I use the term umbrella term for big words like that, especially when I'm teaching, because I want students to understand that there's a variety of people or perspectives that fit under an umbrella term. And of all the umbrellas out there, liberalism's probably the biggest. Yeah. I think the... One of the problems is that, as you say, some people would project it back to the Greeks or mm-hmm. some sort of Plato to NATO narrative, yeah. right? Um, and sometimes we can even do this successfully. Like uh, uh, some scholars will say, oh, well, back to Cicero, you know, and the idea of a Roman gentleman's liberality. Uh, I'm not sure that I can subscribe to the entire Plato to NATO narrative, though. I certainly don't. A lot of scholars would say, oh, a 17th century thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people say 18th. Some people say 19th. John Stuart Mill, yeah. you know, his, his famous book, On Liberty, from 1859. Uh, some people make that the Ur moment, the uh, starting point. So... I don't know. For me, I have to make a comparison with capitalism here, right? Okay. Because people will do the same thing with this other huge term of uh, uh, of our culture today, of Western civilization, and so forth. People will project capitalism back into ancient history, or others will insist on some sort of moment, whether it be 1492, you know, that the um, the point at which uh, European expansion goes, begins to go global. Some people will uh, confine it to the, make the 16th century the starting point and so on. Mm-hmm. And I think searching for a starting point is not our best approach mm-hmm. because, you know, unlike what would be a, what would be a good example like Unlike something that you can actually see in the real world, you know, the United States of America, love it or hate it, indifferent, whatever the case may be, we can point to a to an origin. And even here, of course, it gets contested. Remember, mm. the 1776 versus the 1619 yeah, project. Absolutely. But at least we've got a tangible entity that exists 
and we can track that development. We can track that emergence. With capitalism or with liberalism, we're all of a sudden on very shaky ground because as much as we think that we're talking about something real, and of course, on some level we are, yeah. like, uh, it's a mistake to reify this. It's a yeah. mistake to say, oh, well, liberalism is this thing. And if only we get to... If only we see it more clearly, if only we can agree, if only we can impose our will on somebody else, mm -hmm. because they, of course, see capitalism differently. They see liberalism differently. Then we're going to get to it, and then we're going to agree. So a lot of people do, including a lot of smart people, do take that as the starting point. Liberalism is a real thing uh, in the real world. That it's a, it's a phenomenon. It's something that we can track. It's emergence and development. I take the point of view that as a starting point, liberalism is an essentially contested concept. Yeah. That's that's kind of my starting point. Absolutely. Yeah. So how would you how would you kind of define liberalism if you had to? Well, I actually want to I I'm going to get to that question. I want to back up for half a second and comment on what you were talking about with starting points as being sort of a faulty mm -hmm. uh, uh, narrative tool that historians use sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I'm a bit more enthusiastic about narrative discussions or origin discussions only because, especially when teaching, it's such a unique tool to point out uh, wherever you decide to initiate your moment, initiate your idea, or whatever, that says something about your values, right? Totally. Yeah. When does America begin? Oh, you could say 1607. You could say, and if you're more inclined toward the, the more evangelical through line in American history, you could say, well, it was you know, the 1630s when the Puritans show up. Or we could do 1619, as the 1619 Project does, which takes a particular racial narrative. Or you could pick out 1776. Or uh, you could pick out 1865. Or, as I've heard said, a democracy is only as old as its youngest constituency. You could pick out 1965. Um, so I don't, have, I, I guess I would have a problem, I agree with you, in that if somebody picked out a hard date and said liberalism begins here, and everything before this was just barbarism, and everything after is the slow ascent of enlightenment, you know, of course I would have a problem with that. But I do love the, the contingency of history. Like, well, if we look at this moment, and how this idea changed, say, John Locke, or if we mm -hmm. look at, uh, you already mentioned Mills, uh, or if we look at Lincoln or somewhat, liberalism sort of is transforming and evolving as it goes. And I like looking at never siding with one starting point, but sort of many. We can start with, say, Cicero. And here's what it means. Uh, being liberal means at that point in time. And uh, it's a term that gets bigger and bigger as it goes, I think. So you asked about how I define it, and uh, I've been thinking about this for a while and reading some of the texts you shared with me and uh, listening to others, uh, you know, podcasts or YouTube videos, and, and just trying to get a variety of, of perspectives on what liberalism is, and I made a little list. Okay, uh, cool. First of all, you're familiar with this phrase that liberalism is the dominant ideology in, in modern history. I think this is sort of the Francis sure. Fukuyama uh, yeah. strain of, yeah. you know, um, 
liberalism is like the end of history. You know, we've we've reached the development pinnacle of humanity. I don't know how much I, I agree with that, especially because I think liberalism is largely just a pleasant veil over the uh, cruel skeleton of capital that's underneath our society. So I don't put a lot of stock in liberalism, though I do think the conversation about it is very important. At the end of the day, I think we're talking about a bundle of terms that don't all link up very well. So first and foremost would be individual rights, right? There's a huge emphasis on, at least in, in modern times, again, we could define liberalism a variety of ways based on our starting point. But it seems today there's an emphasis on individual rights, so freedom of speech, assembly, press, religion. Uh, the most recent iteration of liberalism, as I think, is this war over what constitutes privacy and what kind of right to privacy can you expect in, in society. And uh, the biggest example I can think of in that regard is Roe v. Wade and the, the abortion controversy. Um, I would say that a liberal person would be willing to let a woman choose what to do with her body. Someone from the opposite perspective might say, well, it's not a very liberal thing to do to kill a fetus or a baby inside you. So, I, again, I don't think a lot of what we understand is liberalism. The circle does not complete. I can't think of a good way to say it, but a lot of these ideas don't quite meet up. So We've got these warring liberalisms going on, so I'm not sure we can capture one idea. Uh, elected government, I think, is another major theme. Uh, of liberalism, especially if you're looking at that John Locke strain, beginning to break away from the more medieval or, or Renaissance strain of liberalism, which is more about you know connectedness and community and, and giving, as, as far as I understand it. Uh, equality before the law and uh, separation of powers in a written constitution. Uh, you can kind of combine all, all those together. I think that that's a more modern iteration of liberalism. And lastly, and I think most importantly, free markets. I don't think that we can have any sort of conversation about political liberty, which is, I think, what most people think about when you use the term liberalism, without getting away from the, and this is the Marxist coming out of me, the, the material structure that we're standing on. Okay, you've got the right to vote. Great. Do you have a car? Can you get to your polling place? If you don't, what good do, do those liberal rights do you? And, okay, you've got a car, great. Has your, your precinct been gerrymandered in such a way that no matter how many people vote, it's going to end up actually reflecting the will of the people? Again, I, at the end of the day, as much as I enjoy talking about liberalism and trying to define it, I do think it is mostly uh, emotional masturbation for democracies. <laughs> And they get to think about how great they are, and we've got all these rights, and we've got this written constitution, we've got this tradition that goes back hundreds of years, and it, you know, America has more prisoners than any other nation on the face of the earth. And I guarantee you the conditions of them are just as bad as any you know, uh, terrible Russian gulag that haunts the pages of history. I, I, I'd be willing to warrant. I, and so I, I'm inherently distrustful of the promising narrative of liberalism, but I do think that there is some, uh, there's some flakes of gold maybe in the ash that we can mm -hmm. pick out. Okay. So what's your perspective on that? I'm sure you don't agree with uh, my hard take there. Well, yeah. It's helpful, first of all, to, to flesh out, yes, you're generally, um, you would call yourself not a liberal. Uh, uh, yeah, probably and, not. And, and I would, I, I would call mm -hmm. myself a liberal. 
And it's weird because I don't mean it liberal necessarily in an American sense. I don't mm-hmm. in in the normal sense. Like liberal versus lives, conservative. Liberal versus yeah, conservative. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, often our language betrays us here. Mm-hmm. Uh, neither do I necessarily mean it in the classical sense because we only started talking about classical liberals after like no one was calling themselves a classical liberal in the so-called classical age, sure. say the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, but people who call themselves libertarians now were, yeah, um, very much of that strain that broke off, kind of an economic versus a political split that, yeah. you're, that you're talking about. A few points, though, I need to, I need to raise. Okay. Do you need a piece of paper? And, um, yeah, please, <laughs> just, just, so, just so I can jot, not necessarily this time, but you say, okay, the rate of mass incarceration, you know, the, the, the phenomenon of mass incarceration in this country is indeed a huge issue. Mm-hmm. It is indeed a shame. Yeah. Uh, something that we really need to deal with. But to say that people in American prisons uh, are kind of in the same boat as people in the Russian gulag, I think, mm-hmm. I think you said. Now, that is just ridiculous. You That's think so? Just, absolutely. Like... And I'm not saying that n- nothing really, really, really bad goes down in mm-hmm. American prisons. Indeed, a lot goes down. Uh, but we do need to distinguish between uh, the prisons of still the richest country in the world versus the prisons of a place like Honduras or indeed a place like, uh, a, a place like Russia. Do mafias often have a lot of traction in American prisons? Absolutely. Uh, are there... Do some elements of, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know how most accurately uh, to say this, of our carceral system, do some elements of our carceral system sometimes uh, use rape as penal policy? Mm-hmm. Like, it would be very naive of us to say no. But all of that said... Things are way better. The material conditions of prisoners uh, in America, it, there's just no comparison to make between that and the kind of prison system that might exist in Honduras mm. or in Russia, in which, you know, there's just... You don't need to be pro-America. You don't need to be law and order to make this argument. Um one of the things for like, if, let's look at it from a more leftist perspective. Let's look at it from the perspective of somebody like Foucault, right? Mm-hmm. And all of Foucault's acolytes. And full disclosure, I don't have much sympathy for Foucault. But, I'm not surprised. <laughs> but in this way, I think he was, in, in, in one way in particular, I think he was right. Where, let's look at the evolution from the medieval spectacle of drawing and quartering, for mm-hmm. example. Let's take the most horrifying spectacle. And it was a spectacle. It was something meant to instill fear and loathing in the populace. It was something Certainly. meant to be a circus. It was something, you know, along the lines of ancient Roman gladiator combat or something like that. Or it's like tarring and feathering. Yeah, yeah, where like you that. are you are engaging in a public spectacle to humiliate and to punish to, in fact, torture and then execute, right? Then 
you go and the French Revolution is a really good example of uh, of the next stage or iteration of, of this process, right? Now, no matter what you're doing, you don't have drawing and quartering after the re revolution, but you do have mass beheadings. You have the guillotine. Mm -hmm. You have uh, you have people being executed on all sorts of trumped up charges. Uh, you have a it was rightly called, and it is rightly called, the Reign of Terror, right? Mm. So it's still a public execution, but there's no physical torture beforehand, right? It's an execution pure and simple. And then at some point uh, soon after that, you start getting private executions. You start getting, okay, now why, why is this happening? Why are we going from this medieval torture uh, pu you know, public spectacle to the guillotine, still a public spectacle, but uh, no, lo no longer torture in that same way, to, okay, now we are still engaging in capital punishment, but this is not a public spectacle anymore. This is something, in fact, that we are ashamed of. It's something that oh, we think of, oh, we, we failed somehow to rehabilitate. And one of the things, one of, one of the, the points that Foucault makes, and I think rightly so, um, and Foucault, for the, uh, you know, Michel Foucault, this academic, uh, French academic beloved on the left, he died in the 80s. Um, lots more to say about him, but, but his book, uh, Discipline and Punish, is iconic. Mm -hmm. And it, there, there is some good value there, even though I think a lot of the criticisms, the very wicked and vehement criticisms mm -hmm. of this book do hold up. But his point, as far as it goes, is a good one. He's saying that one of the reasons why this progression happens from torture and public execution to just execute public execution to then only private execution is because, he says, it offends our vision, our image mm -hmm. of ourselves. Yeah. We think we're the good people. Good people don't engage in this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, think of the social role of the executioner in, 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 uh, in medieval history. This is a person who wears a hood because, you know, he, he gets very well paid. But, mm -hmm. You know, you're, you, you're kind of on the dark side, even though you're yeah, supposedly yeah. doing God's work. And, and you know, it, it's a, uh, it, 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 it puts you at odds with society. And so I think it's fair to say that that's where we are now. Like, we have a vision of ourselves, and this isn't just about the carceral system. This mm -hmm. certainly isn't just about capital punishment. It's about, um, we are the good people, and good people don't do that. And so we go through a lot of mental gymnastics, and sometimes, as you say, it becomes a veneer mm -hmm. over a very ugly reality. Yeah. What did you call it? The skeleton of capitalism, yeah, yeah, the, the carcass of yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. something like that. So... Um, I know that that's a little bit of a tangent, but it kind of no, brings us into a in, into a little bit of a larger response to when we talk about liberalism. You mentioned you know individual rights. Mm. You mentioned the free market, and it's true that many who have called themselves liberal are vehemently, and I would say maniacally, and um, kind of in a Manichaean way, clung to those things, which are, let's face it, extremes. If we say, I am all about individual rights, individual rights trump everything else, everything, absolutely everything else, um, then 
Okay, that might make for a good criticism. That might make for a good pamphlet, especially when a regime is overweening, when the oppression comes so thick and fast that all you can do is dream about having individual rights. Mm. But it is unworthy of us today, certainly of us today in America and throughout the West, to say individual rights trump everything else. Same thing with free market. You know, someone like Friedrich Hayek or mm -hmm. pick your most rabid of the, you know, say mid-20th century, more or less conservative social theorists who were all about free markets. They just mm -hmm. had absolutely nothing good to say about any kind of government regulation at any time, yeah. ever, 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 right? And you're suggesting there needs to be a balance between there these There needs two. to be a balance. And indeed, there always is a balance. There's never been a completely free market. Um, it's always existed uh, amidst, okay, what are the social pressures? What are the social imperatives? Even better than Hayek is, uh, an even better example than that is... Um, Oh, what's her name? She wrote The Fountainhead, Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand, yeah. One of, uh, you probably know Buckley, right? William mm -hmm. Buckley, the, the, uh, the famous, I don't know what, what you would call him, the fusionist conservative yeah, of the, uh, of the conservative 20th colonist. century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as much as I might, I would, I would have loved to have debated him. Uh, but I think he was right. This was his reaction to Ayn Rand's. So the Fountainhead, I remember, I read that probably, I was 18 or 20 years old. And I remember, okay, it's, it's, it, I, I read it. I, I didn't, I, I didn't just, um, you know, read a chapter or a couple yeah, yeah. of pages and throw it away. It held my attention through the entire book. It's certainly her best book. I would say, <laughs> Atlas Shrugged. I, I, read that, I read that in a capitalist uh, in a class on capitalism years ago in grad school. It was, I mean, it was so bad. It was good. It was, um, you know how you watch a, an old movie that um, just to laugh at it and yeah, ridicule yeah. it. I yeah. don't know. I, I'm fine. It's it was like that. It's like how could you? You <laughs> could not possibly have been serious to to write this book. <clears throat> It was full of just after this dystopian wonderland, America as, as a dystopia, and mm -hmm. the only good people, diamonds in the rough, amidst just a completely degenerate ruling class, a completely degenerate working class. Um, the diamonds in the rough were the free market types, the yeah. people who were just going to... A, follow their own selfish economic interest, and there was something noble about it, and there was something... and. Uh, the reason I brought up Buckley was Buckley uh, responded to the book. I think he called it. He said, "He said I think this is the most unkind book I've ever read." Yeah, I, I, the, the, there is a. Uh, I mean, we could have a whole episode on Ayn Rand, but the, there's such a vehemence and virulence toward, I think, life and happiness in general that that runs through her books. Yeah, yeah I mean, and and you can understand where she is coming from, right? She uh, she fled the revolution, right? Mm -hmm. She um, she came to America. This was supposed to be the counterpoint. This was supposed to be the great experiment of liberty, mm -hmm. and she found it to be uh, she found it to be inhabited by troglodytes. And of course, this was New Deal America, and you know the opposition to the uh, to the New Deal from so many quarters and. I will note very quickly that she had a terrible relationship with her mother. 
which I think bleeds through in her female characters, but a wonderful relationship with her father, which okay. I think also bleeds through uh, in the, the, the way that women relate to men in her books. And second of all, she was obsessed uh, for quite a long time with Hollywood, lived in California for a okay. while, wanted to be... Uh, an actress. Uh, she had a huge number, even when she was older, she she lived in California, right? I, family friends from, you know, back as I was growing up, I heard about family friends who were like super devotees of her. Like mm-hmm. They had almost, almost joined her cult. Yeah. Um, I think there's something to be said with about what you're getting at, her disappointment maybe a little bit with uh, the vapidness of American... Consumerism. Yeah. I, I think that came partially with her fixation on Hollywood. Uh, no, but that, that's it, my postulation. It makes a lot of sense, and it would make a lot of. I, I think I've never thought about this before, but it would make a lot of sense to compare her experience with the experience, say, of Emma Goldman, mm-hmm. who uh, you know, Russian emigre, uh, you know, well before the Russian Revolution. So she's, I'm not sure exactly, but she's probably like the. She's certainly younger, maybe the generation before. Yeah, anyway. it was late 19th century with her. And so, but when she was deported from America back to revolutionary Russia, uh, she had a similar experience. She and, you know, uh, there were many other wobblies, many other radicals who ended up back in revolutionary Russia, and they thought they were going into Shangri-La. They thought that the revolution would usher in utopia. And they were horrified by, you know, Lenin's summary executions of dissenters and so forth. And Emma Goldman actually secured an audience with Lenin. And he, she pleaded with him mm. and he dismissed her concerns as bourgeois sentimentality. So it's really interesting to see how um, the, the high hopes and then the letdown from both, from both sides and how that plays out. So anyway, so... You can be a free market fanatic, right? And you can be a, an opposite side fanatic, a fanatic for government regulation, a fanatic for less... We wouldn't... I don't know anybody today who's a fanatic for a controlled economy, but I think the liberal point of view that I would advocate today would be let's agree in principle that... Free markets are better than command economies, but at the same time that there is inevitably going to be a lot of regulation. We can acknowledge at the outset, and you don't have to be super on the anti-capitalist left to acknowledge this. We can acknowledge at the outset that one of the strongest critics of the free market types is that when governments do regulate, they generally make a hash of things, they overreact, they um, provoke unintended consequences. Uh, they end up making a problem worse. And always, no. But often, the historical record will certainly bear that out. So if we can agree in principle that, yes, we need a free market, and yes, we need to regulate it, if we can agree to that in principle, then we can start to get into the nitty-gritty debates about, okay, Exactly how is this regulation going to work? Exactly how is this reform going to work? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's keep that. Like, there's a lot more to say, but let's keep that in front of us. Individual rights. Mm-hmm. Individual rights is an interesting one because you got people 
It's a caricature, but far too many liberals today and in the past have embraced this caricature. For them, it's been real liberalism. Individual rights trumps everything else. And you don't have to be a liberal to think that, though. Um, Howard Zinn, for example, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, famous writer of People's History of the United States, leftist, anarchist, I think he would have uh, eventually called himself. He is on record as saying, look, um, it's all about individual rights. I mean, who can talk about the common good when the United States has oppressed minorities, women, uh, working class folks? Uh, how can we possibly talk about a common good in this? Mm. The, the individual rights are everything. He's not a liberal saying this. He's, he's saying this from a more extreme place on the left. Yeah. Meanwhile, same generation, Margaret Thatcher, right? And it's fair, I think, to call her liberal. She was a free market liberal, right? Yeah. She was, um, uh, you know, the conservative, the Tory party. She, was, she led the Tory party for many years in the UK. She says something remarkably similar, right? She says, uh, there is no such thing as society, she says. There are only individuals and families. Like, that's where we need to focus. As like, if a family is not a society in miniature. <laughs> well, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Yeah, we could get a lot of mileage out of that. But the point is, like, if uh, people on the right and the left uh, agree on something, there are two... This is, like, I, I have two different reactions. First, I want to judge, okay, if they're right, let's run with this. Because this is a rare type of consensus, you know, this is, if, uh, if we can all agree on something fundamental like this, then let's run with it. And sometimes that is the case. I don't think that's the case here, though. I think here, this is, uh, this is an example of the two extremes stumbling into fatal contradictions. And this is not a, you know, this is not a liberal chastising the non-liberals. Liberals fall into this extreme all the time uh, to say individual rights. That's it. It's that trumps everything. It's like, again, if we can agree in principle that there is and has to be a tension and a messy tension between individual rights and the common good, if we can agree to that in principle, then the debate, I think, will become far more productive. How, how exactly can we balance these things in a better way? But if we just uh, reject the common good outright, as I know a lot of people do, um, or just talk about the common good a lot, but don't really discern mm -hmm. it very well at all, uh, then we've got problems. Okay. So instead of pushing back on some things that you said, I would rather hear your definition of liberalism first. Oh, or I fire broadside in return. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't I don't have a pet definition. I know okay. a lot of people do. But I would say uh, the argument for an essay I'm working on right now, which is, and it may sound odd, to defend liberalism and yet not have a... not have a... my own, you know two or three sentence definition, you know, mm -hmm. already as an elevator pitch. Partly that's because I'm so deep in the weeds mm -hmm. uh, right now as I'm, tr as I'm trying to research and write for this essay. But it's also, it's different from, if, if, if we were discussing capitalism, and we will definitely be, dis be discussing capitalism a lot uh, on other episodes, 
I would take a much more, I would take a much more circumspect position. I wouldn't be the pro-capitalist person to the anti-capitalist person. Um, the pro and the anti, like there are really, really compelling arguments on both sides. Again, this is not something that we can agree on. We can't even agree on what we're talking about when we talk about capitalism. With liberalism, I think it's a little bit different. The reason why I would say I am an advocate for and a defender of liberalism is because whether we like it or not, it includes pluralism. Mm -hmm. So pluralism has to be right at the center of any reasonable, I think, understanding of what liberalism is. Uh, and by pluralism, you mean? It's a very good question. Uh, let's take a historical example. And so... The essay is called The Pre-Liberal and the Post-Liberal. Mm -hmm. And what I'm struggling with is, okay, since definitions are so difficult to, to come by, and since we're not going to exactly agree on it, and I, I don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not skirting out of it, I think, mm -hmm. I think it's really important for me to address what exactly I mean by pluralism here. But let's try to frame it in the context of, okay, what is clearly not liberal? What is pre-liberal? And what is post-liberal? A lot of folks, uh, increasingly, especially on the uh, uh, on the um, religiously conservative right today, would be calling themselves post-liberal. And so, um, in a pre-liberal world, seven hundred years ago in Islamic North Africa, there lived a political philosopher. He was an he was a, a scholar. He was a, an Islamic judge named Ibn Khaldun, mm -hmm. uh, and we usually spell it in English K-H-A-L-D-U-N, Ibn Khaldun. Um, and he formulated a really, I think, compelling um, theory about how and why societies rise and fall. And it was clearly not a liberal theory, right? He lived in an Islamic, in an Islamic land. Now, that said, Islam 700 years ago was a lot more, dare I say, pluralist mm -hmm. than Christian Europe was at the time. Uh, and one of, the main, one of the main ways for us to understand this is to say, in Islamic society, uh, in medieval and in, even into early modern Islamic society, there were a lot of Christians. There were a lot of Jews. Um, there were even some Zoroastrians. Mm -hmm. And they had rights and duties within the fabric uh, under the umbrella of Islamic society. And Islam did not pioneer this. They were merely continuing an old Persian precedent. It was ancient Persian precedent to, and they did this especially with Jews and with, with Christians, they allowed, even though you, so you were a minority in a dominant society. And so it would be too much to talk about equality. It mm -hmm. would even be too much to talk about tolerance, but you had rights and duties and you didn't have them as individuals. You have them as a collective. So a particular Christian community, uh, let's say a particular Christian community that was probably not aligned with Constantinople. It was not aligned. It was so it was not orthodox. It was, uh, you know, from the standpoint of the Christian imperial center, heretical. But let's say you've got, uh, you know, the Church of the East, what we used to call Nestorians. You've got a community in what is now 
eastern Turkey or northern Iraq or northern Syria. Now, that community is going to have quite a lot of autonomy, communal autonomy. They're going to be uh, holding church services in their language, in whatever language they want. They're going to be raising their children and educating their children in whatever language they want, in whatever tradition they want. They need, they are handling most judicial matters in-house as well. Anything to do with each other, they're able to... Now, if one of their number kills, um, you know, uh, someone outside, that's a, that's a different story. But they're handling most judici judicial matters in-house. And they're paying their taxes to the government in a lump sum. And the head of their community, their ecclesiastical head, is also a political figure at the court of the Shah or the Sultan or, or uh, whoever he is. And as long as this community prays for the health of the monarch and outlaws any rebellious Christian subjects, or in the case of the, in the Jewish case, outlaws a Jewish, uh, then they're fine. They are protected. They're not just left alone. They're actually protected. Contrast that to what was going on in medieval Europe, you know, mm -hmm. the, the uh, invitations and then expulsions of Jews. It's very difficult to imagine any kind of Islamic community flourishing. Uh, sure, in some of the more cosmopolitan cities like Venice in the early modern period, you would have small communities like this. But it would be nowhere near the level of, dare I say, plurality that existed in that Islamic culture. So would it be fair to say painting with a broad brush Plurality just means diversity, like a diversity of people in your society, a diversity of religious practices, a diversity of uh, well, yeah, social getting, rights. We're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. I mean, for for our society today, think of, and you don't see it all that much in the more rural areas of America or in the rural areas of France, mm -hmm. but... In our societies today, and particularly in the cities, you've got people of every nation under heaven. You've got people of every ethnicity, people of every language. And so, yeah, how do we deal with that tangible diversity? How do we manage this? How do we uh, bring all this in? Um, I saw a video the other day that was, the, uh, I'll send it to you. I should have, I should have sent it to you before this. It's, it's a total... Uh, um, it's a spoof, but it's a very intelligent spoof. You've got these two guys, two white guys, who, and one is wearing, they're both wearing dark blue t-shirts, and one is wearing a t-shirt that says woke, mm -hmm. and the other is wearing a t-shirt that says racist. And they're both owning these identities, you know, and then, uh, okay, I'm the racist one, I'm kind of the avowedly white supremacist one, and I'm the avowedly, you know, uh, uh, avowedly woke one. And uh, the spoof was that they were aligning in so many ways. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, uh, you know, your racial identity is everything. It's the core of your being. Uh, your sexual identity is everything. It is the core of your being. Your, what you imagine your gender to be, that's the core of your being. And um, it, it, it was an extremely... Uh, it was an extremely witty and funny mm. kind of send-up of the ways in which... Uh, 
things that look like extremes on a political spectrum are actually like a horseshoe touching, or, or even a circle where they end up touching each other. I've seen They're a similar video with seem to be. Uh, uh, like really conservative Christians and really conservative Muslims, and that like Absolutely. only my interpretation is correct, and, oh, and no. only my God is the true God. And they would find so much common ground, conservative Christians and conservative Muslims in their dare we say, I don't mean this in a flippant way, their family values. Mm -hmm. like, it, it's, a, it, it's remarkable the kind of alignments that we find here. So yeah, how exactly can we manage this diversity, this yeah. plurality of voices, of views, of beliefs? How can we do all this? And so pluralism is, is, is an extremely important core of, of, uh, of, what we would, of what we would call liberalism. And I would also argue that we have to balance individual rights and the common good. A lot of liberals and people who don't call themselves liberals would disagree with me on this. Mm. But that we do indeed need to um, enunciate a common good and at times even curtail at least some individual autonomy in the interests of the common good. Um, so there's lots more to say there, but just, just to sum to up, you a, though, yeah, to, to, if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, balance between government power and market power, uh, an emphasis on the common good, and respect for pluralism are kind of like bundled on, under your umbrella of liberalism. Right. Yeah, just like in the same way that we're trying to strike delicate balances between uh, regulation and free markets, mm -hmm. we're also trying to strike a delicate balance between individual rights and the common good. Okay. And yeah, we're placing plurality, pluralism, right there at the center. So I would read that if that were you know an essay or a book or something, and I would not, maybe that's a political philosophy, but I would read that as more of almost like a... I'm probably not using the word sociological correctly, but what I think of political philosophy, I think of something that's oriented strictly towards political power, but you're including mm -hmm. social and cultural ideas like pluralistic oh, society absolutely. in your understanding of liberalism. Absolutely. Is that where you think many liberals, whether they're leaning right or left, are going wrong? They just don't have a, uh, a good way to express how social values and societies need to be tied into these political ideas about liberalism? Yeah, yeah, I could. Because I would agree with you 100% on that. Yeah, and this is yeah. why I am so distrustful of liberalism, because it's a great political philosophy that does nothing for people, I think, at a social level. Yeah. And that's where yeah. I disconnect with it. No, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, one of the things that, that I argue in the essay, and uh, you might diverge from me on this, but, but I, I'm glad that we've got common ground on, on the basics, because it, it's astonishing how quickly an attempt at a productive debate goes off the rails precisely for the reasons you're talking about. Like, the, you know, somebody uh, who, you know, makes a ton of money and lives in, you know, some upscale place in New York or London will have this astonishingly naive view of the world and of human mm -hmm. nature and of who we are and who we should be. And they'll dismiss everybody who doesn't live like them and doesn't have their opportunities as these Neanderthal knuckle, uh, knuckle draggers. And likewise, uh, you know, a person, and this person might call themselves a liberal or not, like from the right, just 
free markets, you know, some sort of hard-headed uh, economic libertarian, likewise will be, from my perspective, astonishingly naive on history, on, like, you do realize that economics is not some sort of carved out separate domain from mm -hmm. everything else right and it's also like, not objective can, yeah. it, it's it, it is a list of create it's a world of created terms and created ideas that yeah. could be uncreated yeah stuff. exactly and this is the this is the um i don't know i think this is the opportunity but it is also the warning okay that, um, so i have a couple of questions for you okay based on what you've said uh, most of the time, I think if people use the word liberalism, they're speaking to a Western tradition. Would you say that that's largely true? Yeah. Yeah. But as much as I've pointed out examples that go in the other direction. But, yeah, that was my, yeah. my question to you. It sounds like you are painting with a much broader brush there that liberalism is not just a liberal tradition. That's more of a human tradition in some ways because it's reflected in non-Western societies or... Yeah. How would you respond to that? Well, it's a good question because I would I would say, first of all, I can't really buy any kind of Plato to NATO narrative here. Mm -hmm. Neither can I buy any kind of um, oh well. I, I wouldn't call what was going on in Muslim North Africa or uh, you know or in the Persian Sassanid dynasty liberalism even though we can absolutely you know uh, show the ways in which there were uh, these societies managed to institutionalize a kind of a pluralism and maybe using an ism is not the right way to, mm -hmm. to discuss this but just imperfectly I'll say that for now even though yes pluralism has existed in, in at different times in different places but what we are dealing with now, it has to be connected to something that we very problematically call modernity. Mm -hmm. like, as much as as a historian, I want to draw the connection. And I will be the first to admit, I don't exactly know what modernity is. People yeah. will have a blizzard of origin points to modernity. Same thing as which, liberalism, right? It's too exactly, big. It's too none big. of which I can buy into. Yeah. Like All of which are imperfect. But nevertheless, here we are. And indeed, there is some change between our time and the time we're living in and times past. There has, like there's continuity too, but there has been change. And indeed, there's been some fundamental change. Yeah. It's definitely the um, 1600s. There's, there's no other answer. <laughs> the, the, the divide between modern and pre-modern is the, the long uh, 17th century. But that's just my take. Well, I, <laughs> I think we should devote an entire episode to this because it's, yeah, it's... Um, a lot of people would agree with you, and, and there, there's uh, there's a lot of compelling things that you can harness to say the long 17th century is absolutely the transition time to modernity. Um, I'd argue against it, but it, it'll be fun. It, okay. it, would, it would be it would be. Fun Are you earlier to, or later than that? Neither. Oh, okay. I, I, like I said, I when I say I can't buy into any of the origin points, it's not because we need to push it back or pull it closer. I see. It's that. None of the origin point, like they're all. We have to have change and continuity together. Yeah. We have to acknowledge both of them together. And 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 so, what we very problematically call the modern world. This is, this is where we're at. This so liberalism has to include 
you can't disembody it. You can't take it away from the conditions of the world, the Western-dominated world as it is. And so here's where we get to the post-liberals, right? Okay. So the critics, and this is often an epithet that is used against these religious conservative thinkers, but some, some of these religious conservative thinkers actually use the term for themselves. They own the term for themselves. I am post-liberal, they say. I, we, we have gone off the rails. We have taken a wrong turn someplace. Now, if they're Catholics, they think that the wrong turn happened in the Renaissance. If they're Protestants, they think that the wrong term hap- uh, happened elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thing to, to play around with. You know, yeah, again, um, your, your origin date tells you something about your values. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. As an aside, you're, the, the, like, the next time we pick up a history book, like I always do this with my students, like a table of contents is not just some table of contents. It almost gives you the argument right there because yeah. you can see where this person is starting. You can see what this person is emphasizing. Uh, how exactly are they structuring? Um, so even in something as seemingly innocuous as a timeline, you've already got an argument built in. Yeah. But yeah, so these post-liberals, so-called, will say, okay, we've taken a fundamental wrong turn. And some of them will make a, let's call it a less sophisticated argument, that we need to go back, that all of this global society hoo-ha is... That's fundamentally the problem. Uh, Boris disagrees with liberalism entirely. He's a good little communist dog. (laughs) And so these post-liberals, they will... One of the things that I try to do in the essay is to say, look, the critics of liberalism, of right and left, are not mere reactionaries and radicals, that they actually have something very important to offer. Not that they have something important to offer in that less sophisticated sense of, oh, we should go back to the pre-Reformation time where everything was great. Like, some people will make that argument, and that's, of course, mm. ridiculous. Like the Unintended Reformation, that book. <laughs> you know what? I, uh, I, I, I know Brad Gregory, the author. Oh, you know him personally? Yeah, okay. yeah. And I, I really like him. I think there's a lot of good parts of that book. But yes, so his, his argument in The Unintended Reformation is, and I'm, I'm wildly paraphrasing here, mm-hmm. it's a very big book. We would need to talk more about it to do it justice. It's also been about 10 years since I read it, so I don't okay. really remember that much about it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it, it, it's got a lot of good food for thought, but... One of the things he's pushing against is the standard narrative, or what had until very recently been the standard narrative of the Reformation, that this is what gave rise to modernity. And it was a good thing, right? That, oh, the Reformation, it's kick-started the process by which individual liberties, political revolutions, um, all of these things came to fruition, and the modernity, the, that the Reformation was at the root of that. So Gregory flips that on its head. He says, yes, it did all that. Mm-hmm. And it was a fundamentally bad thing. Yeah. So I, I'm, I, I can't fully agree. I, I certainly can't agree with the first narrative. And I can't fully agree with his narrative either. It's not good enough to just say, well, the, 
the Reformation was the key to modernity, and then we fight over whether it was good or bad. But to go back to when we say, oh yes, we want to go back to a simpler time. So uh, one of Brad Gregory's colleagues at Notre Dame, Brad Gregory is in the history department, but uh, one of his colleagues in political science is named Patrick Deneen. Mm -hmm. And he has recently become widely loathed, I think it's fair to say, all across the left and in liberal circles because of his strident, strident criticisms of liberalism. Yeah, he wrote he that wrote, book. Um, he wrote, yeah, in 2018, he wrote Why Liberalism Failed. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And then just in 2023, uh, he, uh, his book Regime Change came out, okay. which is a continuation of the argument, uh, arguing, well, it, 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 he, he's got a lot of interesting arguments. Now, two things I want to, two parallels I want to draw, uh, draw attention to. Number one, when Den somebody like Denin says, okay, liberalism failed, what we need to do is we need to get back to a more communitarian mode of existence, a more local mode, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> small-scale communities, self-sufficient communities, and so forth. A lot of anarchists say the same thing yeah. from, a very, from a very different perspective, of course, but they're converging on the same thing. Mm -hmm. And how is all of this any different than when you, when you look at Islamic radicals, right? Islamic fundamentalists, people who are willing to hoist the black flag against not only the West but against what they see as quizzling Islamic rulers who have sold out to the West. How is this any different than these people? The way they rationalize it, the way they see their world is, okay, we used to be great. Islam used to be great. And in the rise of the West, we lost that. Now why? Why did we lose it? They, they ask themselves. And the answer that many people, and I'm not saying all Muslims think this, of mm -hmm. course, but the most hardcore of the Muslims willing to use violence, willing to hoist the black flag, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, Al-Qaeda and, mm -hmm. and uh, Islamic State and so forth. What they are doing explicitly is they want to roll the clock back to the 7th century. Mm -hmm. They want, they, for them... Going back to what they imagine the 7th century looked like, that's the answer. And so, a lot of interesting parallels there. Like, I, I can't quite subscribe to this. This isn't the only thing Deneen says, of course. I find some of his arguments compelling. And I guess this is probably the, the, the best place to transition and to hear what you think. The, I argue in the essay that a lot of the criticism is sound. Mm -hmm. Liberals have indeed, and we're not the only ones, but liberals have indeed been a, very naive on a number of things. And one of the things, uh, and this is, I think, where Deneen's argument is the strongest, is that we liberals have to take religion more seriously. And not just the groovy kinds of religion, not just the kind of religion that calls itself progressive and liberal, but conservative even old-time forms of religion, because we have such a, an ingrained contempt for it, um, because we're so sure that we have the right answer, um, we're neglecting a worldview. Uh, and it's not just that we're neglecting it. It's that 
these people, these people who are enemies of liberals, and this is just as true for the left, but I'm, I'm focusing on the right for right now, they've got some stuff to teach us. They've got some stuff to, uh, to share with us. And if we can't take it on board, if we can't pay closer attention to what exactly they reject about liberalism and why, then that's on us. Then we're almost giving them the momentum. We're giving them almost the status of being the adults in the room because we have such a naive view of the world and of human nature. We think that, hey, we, you know, okay, whatever was going on in that past before modernity, right? Mm -hmm. That vile, violent, brutish life that was happening before that, whatever that was, mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with us, right? Yeah. Uh, we are inherently good, or at least we have the potential to be inherently good and to march through, I'm being unkind here, yeah, yeah. march so. through sunbeams and rainbows. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of um, traction in the criticisms of liberalism from that direction. Yeah, I'm simultaneously sympathetic to that argument that you know we need to get back to some sort of more interconnected, more uh, uh, communal, rural, mutualistic society. I, I think that a lot of people on the left and the right would connect with that idea. Where it falls apart for me is how do you maintain a society like that because at some point the 300 pound guy that lives under the bridge is going to come out with his big stick he's going to bonk all the men over the head and he's going to take all the women and all the sheep and like here we go again and society has and i don't want to lean too far in the other direction because people that say everything before modernity is you know this vile violent place i don't think that's true either in fact i would say that our modern society is just as violent if not more so in many regards though uh, given our disagreement about the gulags, uh, we, we might disagree over levels of violence in history and what that means about society. But yeah, I'm kind of stuck in the middle but in this perspective of um, how much do we need to criticize liberalism uh, and embrace communalism. But I'm kind of critical of that perspective as well because I yeah. think there's this great line from a very terrible movie, The Patriot. Uh, Why should I trade one tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants one mile away? And so when people really... And, and Neil yeah, Wright and I have this, this, this argument sometimes um, in, uh, when talking about communalism. Neil, around, who is our colleague at, yeah, at Quincy University. At, at He's Quincy. in political science. Uh, and I would say a self-fashioned anarchist. Uh, I think he would agree with that term. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have this debate from time to time. Uh, what makes us so sure that if we were to abandon the, the tenets of liberalism, that the society we would have left over would be any more enjoyable or, yeah. or, or less tyrannical? Um, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I think that a, a very good way to get at what you're saying, to so how can we knit ourselves together better such that we don't just all dance off on our own atomistic agendas um, and society falls apart and the troll under the bridge comes and beats us all over the head, right? Mm. A very good way to approach that issue of the connections that bind us together is, so in medieval North Africa 700 years ago, this philosopher I was talking about, Ibn Haldun, mm -hmm. He lived and he died in a time of military anarchy and general chaos. 
this was the time of the Black Death. Both his parents died of the plague, and you know, mm-hmm. so it, it, society was, um, you know, it was in a bad way. I think uh, no matter how no matter how we look at it, and as he formulated his theory of how societies rise and fall, he was looking at. So it was just a normal thing in those times for tribes out of the desert, you know, the troll under the bridge. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's a good comparison to be made there. Uh, tribes out of the desert coming in and displacing the rulers of the cities. Uh, and then they would become the sedentary rulers. And then, soon enough, more tribes out of the desert would displace them again. It was just this rinse and repeat type process, right? And Ibn Haldun tried to make sense of this world, and he formulated his theory of history using this key concept he, uh, of asabia, he called it. In Arabic, this is a concept that can be translated group solidarity, group feeling, um, with, a certain, with, a, with a real acknowledgement of bias, of you know, loyalty to our group is paramount. Like, I don't know what, what, what those other people are doing, but we are together and that's all that matters. And so his theory went, ran like this. He praised and lionized the virtue and the toughness of these desert, of these desert tribes. Uh, they were tightly knit together. Their asabia was powerful. And he really criticized the degeneracy and the corruption of the city dwellers. Their asabia was weak, you know, mm. they had become too atomized. They, had, they were just ripe for a takeover. And so he explained these successive waves like this. He says, of course, like these tribes out of the desert are going to displace these corrupt and effete rulers. And then those people who had once been strong, they're the... the pleasures of civilization are going to erode their moral fiber as well. Mm-hmm. Their asabia is going to weaken. The process is going to repeat. You know? And so he had a real... Um, it's a very compelling theory, beloved by so many academics on the left today. People call him a proto-sociologist. People call him... He, he's, his, his theory is very much in vogue. Now, take that asabia, those... It literally means in Arabic uh, a, the kind of a binding or twisting of fibers or sinews that, that hold a group together. So, this is going to seem like a leap. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to the early 20th century. Fascists, real avowed fascists, right, of the early 20th century saw their world and what was wrong with it in a remarkably similar way to how Ibn Haldun did. Uh, the, the very term fascism comes from the Italian fascio, mm-hmm. right? Fascio meaning a uh, bound bundle of sticks. Yeah. And so the, the, you know, by, you know, you can imagine a high school football coach saying something like this, one stick, easily, easily broken. broken. You know, yeah. A bunch of sticks, you can't break A bunch of sticks, yeah, you yeah. can't break them, yeah, yeah. right? That, that was how they saw themselves in their world. So, and... Not coincidentally, very similar to populist rhetoric today, you know, the fascists of the early 20th century were saying, look, you have a corrupt international capitalism, uh, a smug cosmopolitan elite oppressing the little guy. Well, here's what we need to do to take it back. Like one stick easily broken. 
but a bound bundle of sticks, they can't break us, and we're going to get them. And so, Fasho, Asabia, Fasho, from the liberalism's greatest demons, mm. right? The fascists of the, of the 20th century. Asabia, from this Islamic intellectual living 700 years ago, beloved today by academics from the left. The, there's an odd symmetry going on here. And I, one of the things I try to do is to go back to that balance of common good and individual rights. We cannot just, we can argue about what the common good is. I often think I know what the common good is and maybe I'm mistaken. Uh, objective truth is really, really important. Um, but it is equally important for me to acknowledge with sincere humility that I may not have as much access to the common to, to that objective truth as I think I do. And having that balance between the confidence to say, look, there is a common good. Like this is not just a figment of our imagination, and this is not just some quest for power, some mm. Foucauldian or uh, Nietzschean, uh, you know, power struggle that I'm trying to dress up with a thin veneer of respectability. That this common good really exists, and yes, as important as individual rights are, taking the lessons of Ibn Haldun as well as those fascists, like taking that lesson on board, that link on board, and saying. There are things that do and must bind us together. Mm. Um, having the confidence and the humility to kind of to pursue that is, I think, central to the work of our generation. You know, mm. How are we going to prevent the United States of America from, from falling apart? You know, if everybody is all atomized, and, uh, if, uh, if demagogues are popping up left and right, this is a historical pattern. You don't have to be on one side of the political aisle or another to notice this political pattern. And indeed, to be on one side of the political aisle and to think, I and my people have all the virtue. All of the truth is over here. Mm. And like, it's, it, this, is a, this, is, this is, a I think, a catastrophically naive point of view. Because, okay, we can look back in the recent history and see these patterns. But even more importantly, we can go back way deep into history and see, like, absolutely nobody today, no matter how historically literate, no matter what your politics, you will not go back and you'll, you will not say, oh, the Italian city-states of, of, uh, of medieval Italy uh, and the, the, the complete collapse that those, that those flourishing city-states underwent, you will not say, the good guys lost and the bad guys won. And in, you certainly won't look back at the Roman Republic or the Greek cities, the ancient Greek city-states, collapsing, cycling through monarchy to democracy to military dictatorship, and you will not say, the good guys lost and the bad guys won. Like, we have enough perspective to say, look, this factionalization, this polarization ripped societies apart. And it's like a chemical reaction. We can see it from that, from that vantage point. And so one of the things that I really try to strongly argue for in the essay is yes to pluralism, no to relativism. Like, yes, pluralism is a reality, and it can be also be our strength. 
But when we just fall into, oh, let's agree to disagree, and let's just, you do your thing, I do my thing, and we become these atomized individuals who have lost sight of the common good, we might even deny that the common good even exists, that's trouble. That's catastrophe brewing. I, I like that you stopped there, and we've got a few more minutes left, so I, I want to strike at the heart of this issue of common good, because I certainly believe there is a common good, and I believe we should all strive for it. Yeah, I do yeah. not believe that it is possible. Okay. It's kind of like saying, okay. I believe that I have free will, but I know it doesn't exist, because I, I, I hold that as true as well. Like, Interesting. Okay. Yes. This, I, I'm, I'm writing this down because... We need to devote an entire episode to this. Sure, sure. I I think that uh, material determinism is the reality that we all suffer and or flourish under. Um, I look forward to disagreeing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, So, because we can all sit in a room and say, yeah, the common good is a, a great thing. And then I have three words for you. Jim Crow society. There were plenty of people, even before Jim Crow Society in the Antebellum South, but afterwards, who had said, why are you, before would have said, why are you trying to get rid of slavery, but after the Civil War would have been like, why are you trying to, to Northern liberals, they would have said something like this. Right. Why, why are you coming down here and trying to give black people civil rights? Mm-hmm. Uh, and lots of white people said this, our black people are happy where they are. Our peculiar institution, again, a pre-war term, or our particular society, a post-war term, is, is good the way it is. We, we do have pluralism. We have, you know, black people. They live in our society. And, um, uh, many of them are sharecroppers. And uh, they know their place. And we know ours. And uh, they would have, in, in a Calhoun-like way... Uh, believe that they were living in a liberal society and believe that the society that they had was commonly good and, and that the, the way that race relations were structured, you could expand this out to gender relations, class relations, the way that things were structured was good. And to tamper with that was to go against the common good. So this is one of my big, my big tripping points when we talk about liberalism and the common good is that it's a self-defeating mechanism, kind of, because you've got... All these different people that have different notions of the common good, so they're agreeing uh, philosophically, perhaps, on common terms. They mean drastically different things by these terms in lived reality. And it is the clash of those lived realities that will always undermine the umbrella term. So was, was Jim Crow society a pluralistic society? And if it was pluralistic, was it a liberal society? And if it was a liberal society, was the common good that it held to be true, and it being the, the, the power brokers, the white folks that controlled it, was that indeed a common good? Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an excellent question because it, going back to what, remember Foucault's argument about, you know, since it doesn't flatter our pretensions anymore, we choose not to torture people in public. We would prefer to do that in private. But some people would say that we do torture people in public. I mean, uh, Alton Sterling, shot to death. Sure, uh, sure. And a a gas station in Baton Rouge, uh, George Floyd. Uh, Some people would say that this sort of stuff still happens. And so... Yeah, there are a lot of very rich directions we we can go with this. But let's just 
agree at the outset that drawing and quartering somebody in a medieval town square is not the same as what happened with Chauvin and George Floyd, right? Uh, Maybe. It, uh, yeah, you, you could draw some continuity. You, you would also need to acknowledge some remarkable change between those Certainly. two Certainly. And I, I think... Nobody, uh, everybody knew in the morning of that drawing and quartering where they were going to be. Certainly. Right? Everybody knew. Certainly. We're heading there because it's a festival because, you know, who knows? I'm going to meet the love of my life there. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> it was a social gathering as well as a... Um, but speaking of Jim else. Crow society, people gathered around. There are photographs of this and oh, watched hangings yeah, and, and then broke apart the bodies and took home the souvenirs. Now, so. here we're on NAPS. I, I think here we agree completely to, to draw lines, a direct continuity between medieval drawing and quartering and the horrific public spectacles of lynching. Uh, in the Jim Crow South. And those were executed by a liberal society that believed in a common good. And this is, well, sure, I mean, and... And they believed that what they were doing was good because this a lynching was a a way of making the white society cohere and of threatening their others, right? To some extent. But, I mean, think about, think about, certainly by the late 19th century and into the early 20th century, this was a stain that a lot of people were struggling with, right? Mm -hmm. That... We have no idea. I mean, I, I know there are more and less accurate estimates of, uh, of the number of human beings lynched in the Jim Crow South. But part of the problem is that people were, this was as core as this was to a lot of people's identity. You're not wrong to mm-hmm. say, oh, there, there were a lot of people who were just firmly in support of this. I mean, some of the most horrifying images are of, you know, these photographs in which people are leering and smiling. Yeah. And they want to get into the frame to, uh, to celebrate the moment at which they've expiated this dark spirit from their midst. You know, it's, it's, it's a really dire indictment of human nature more broadly, but of America specifically, right? And so one of the strongest arguments of, uh, of the say, anti-liberals or post-liberals or, or just opponents of liberalism on the left is that they will lay this right, right front and center, right? And they're not wrong to do so. You're not wrong to do so. To say, Jim Calhoun, you know, uh, Calhoun was, yeah. a, was a liberal, yeah. wasn't he? Economic liberal, you know, thought he was... was. Yeah. And, and, and if he was, then doesn't that completely indict the entire project of liberalism? Uh, my short answer is no. I think it's really important to draw this out. Again, to draw out the... If I think that I'm a good person, then I'm that, that's going to inflect my behavior in all sorts of ways. That's going to inflect what I'm okay with, what I'm not okay with. I'm, if I'm a good person, okay, I, there's bad in the world, and I can't, I can't really help that. But... I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. And so let's, let's draw out some large-scale comparisons between that time and this. In the very early 19th century, Britain abolishes slavery. Mm-hmm. Right? They say, look, we're not, we, we don't want to do this anymore. We're, you know. And a lot of people have done, uh, have done a lot of very interesting study of this question. Why did Britain do it at this time? You know, The key is... Britain abolishes slavery, abolishes the slave trade in 1808, right? 
This becomes a very big talking point in London drawing rooms, in high society, in polite society. So you will have people who, let's say the, uh, the wife of a just gajillionaire, the equivalent of a gajillionaire industrialist in Manchester or in Liverpool, and this person is richer than God, mm-hmm. and this person is engaging in all sorts of philanthropic projects. Mm-hmm. And one of the fundamental assumptions is, you know, we're one of the good people. Like, look at us. We yep. abolished the slave trade. We're, like, we are here at the cusp of this great modernity, and we are here to help the benighted savages wherever they might be. And it took a person like Karl Marx to point out the folly of all of this, yeah. to say, wait a minute, you are richer than God. You are richer than God because you are an industrialist or the wife of an industrialist whose textile factories in Birmingham and Manchester and Liverpool are transforming the world economy right now, wrecking all sorts of small artisans, transforming the world economy. Everything's in the name of progress. Okay, okay, great. But where did the raw cotton come from that fuels your industrial might? Mm-hmm. And as he points out, it comes from the American South. It, during the Civil War, actually, it started coming from Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting little side story. But the, the point is, we are not done with that world. We still, and I think liberals are the most... Blame is not the right word, but we're at most risk of succumbing to pretensions. Pretensions that we are the good people, right? Uh, But it's not just that. It's everybody in Western society, and indeed most people in Westernized societies as well, where we say, we are the good people. Slavery is bad. We're done with that. We're done with that bad old reality. And maybe in some ways we are. I'm not trying to say... We're not the good people, we're the bad people. I'm, I'm not trying to make that kind of curmudgeonly argument. I'm just trying to point out how many of us today know where the clothes that we are wearing right now came from? Mm-hmm. How many of us know where the components of our phones came from? And in what conditions? And yeah. who was working there? And, you know, we don't need to go too far to find collapses of textile factories, fires in textile factories in Bangladesh and elsewhere. And, uh, And these are people laboring. You are not wrong if you want to say slaving Mm -hmm. to produce these things for a foreign market, right? And so we're not done. I I, I don't want to to deny progress. Progress is a thing. And I'm I'm, uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no on the progress. I want to try to balance between, okay, yes, in some ways we're progressing towards an unknown future. Let's try to make it the best future we can. What are our goals? Like, in that sense, you could call me a progressive, but you could also call me a conservative. And like, there are institutions that we need to preserve in order to get the most out of, in, in, in order to prevent collapse, mm-hmm. in order to prevent fascist takeover, in order for all sorts of different things. Um, and also I want to acknowledge what I might call a secular or ecumenical version of the Catholic doctrine of original sin. Like we are fundamentally flawed Mm -hmm. and we didn't lose those fundamental 
flaws in the transition to modernity whenever you want to draw the line. I'm yeah, not yeah. quite sure. I, I don't buy any of these transition points. But nevertheless, um, here we are. There's a lot of good things about today. I like living today. And there are a lot of flaws. There are a lot of forces that have built up that if we cannot manage deftly, if we cannot balance complex contending forces, then you know, the troll from under the bridge is going is, is, is to leer his little ugly head and start bopping us all over. Like, and it's going to be even more drastic than that. That's yeah. a little funny little metaphor, but it's, yeah. but it, it, it's, it's true. It yeah. points to a truth. And so finding that through line of we're not as good as we think we are, and we're probably not as bad either, but practically speaking... The U.S. Constitution, which is criticized mercilessly by, by many on right and left today, yes. I would argue is a fundamental bulwark of liberalism. That the makers and the defenders of the Constitution, which were reaching deep back into antiquity, right? Where John Adams, is, he was going back to Machiavelli, he was going back to Polybius, uh, James Madison was doing the same. These, they were trying to find the ancient principles with which we could undergird a society. So we need to see a distinction between a more adult version of liberalism and a more juvenile version of liberalism. And I would argue that the makers and the defenders of the U.S. Constitution are really the adults in the room of, okay. of liberalism. So we kind of strayed from, from Jim Crow society, but would you say that in order... To recognize oh, that, yeah, there, yeah. that there is a common good and that we need to uh, well, recognize I mean, our flaws. People, I mean, this is, I, I would call this an egregious example of someone who claim, or a group of people who claim to see the common good, but who really don't. So and, this, and, and, and I, I don't, like, nobody gets to pronounce finally on what it is. One of the genius, one, I, I think one of the um, features of genius of a truly pluralist society is not everyone, like, is how can we harness all of these different elements and learn from each other and at times teach each other to the point where we can hash out that messy middle ground? Uh, and the proof is going to be in the pudding. Like, if the United States of America falls to fascism, then... Um, then we didn't hew closely enough to the common good. It but would be, to believe would be in evident that to all. must mean that we somehow, to some extent, objectively determine what the common good is and exert some sort of effort against other people's perspectives of their common good that are indeed not good. Right? I, I mean, mean it I, involves coercion at some point. At some point, absolutely. There, it, it, it's it's got to be bottom-up, but also top-down. It's got to be... You know, at, at some point, as you say, uh, there is going to be inevitably some coercion. So this, if we can agree in principle, and I'm not sure if we do, but if we can agree in principle that, look, we are never, no human society ever, and that includes the most rudimentary hunter-gatherer clan from millions of years ago, that no human society ever, has been not exploitative. We are, by our very nature, exploitative. If we can agree in principle on that, and then to say, okay, but there's certainly a case to be made to be less exploitative, 
to be stably exploitative, if I can butcher, uh, uh, butcher some language there. Mm. I think that that is our way forward, as opposed to I, a lot of people in our society, again, on the, um, on the left and on the right, would argue, no, 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 our goal is no more exploitation. No more exploitation at all. That's our goal. That's a reasonable goal, and we are going to strive for hell or high water to get there. I would argue that that's part of the unintended consequences that could conceivably wreck us. Mm -hmm. And so, in the narrow case of the of the uh, of of Jim Crow, like, yeah, a lot of people claim to have access to the objective truth, full, complete access. A lot of people claim to to know objectively what the common good is. Mm. Uh, the problem is most all of those claims are going to be incomplete, and some of those claims are going to be downright wrong. Um, hashing it out in our, from my pers- subjective viewpoint and your subjective viewpoint, and we're striving to meet at. Uh, and there, there's sometimes when we are actually going to align. Indeed. If we cannot find that alignment, then, of course, we're cooked. Mm. That might be a good place to stop, though a good place to start up again would for me to be, uh, for me to assail the Constitution is a terrible (laughs) pro-property document that was in alignment (laughs) with the... Uh, the idea that the common good was the good of the property holders. Right. And right. I, we're getting back into this conversation of whose good is it when we're talking about the common good. Absolutely. Um, and Absolutely. I, I think the Constitution very much uh, is it has a certain form of good that, that's in its structure, and that is wealthy property holders. And um, Yeah, I think, we should, I think we should meet very soon to talk about this, because you, here you and Deneen, uh, Deneen coming from a more... Um, uh, more religious conservative perspective uh, would be in alignment, not only in your scorn for the Constitution, but in the the diagnosis. Mm. You know that this was one of those unstable hierarchies, and we claimed to be about the common good, but we weren't really. Yeah. Uh, and so I, yeah, I, I I know I have a a long road to hoe to uh, to to try to argue against you, but I uh, I'd like to be. Sure.